Uh, good morning. I am glad to be with you this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Michael, and glad uh, again, glad to be with you. Um, we are um, we live in kind of a confusing time. Um, there was a uh, and my my thing in the back here is uh, is I'm going to be looking back over my shoulder. So that's a note for me, not for you. You guys will be fine. Um, <clears throat> We live in kind of a confusing time. I think it used to be that uh, the sides were pretty clear cut. Um, the, the cowboys with the black hats were the bad guys. The cowboys with the white hats were the, and so on and so forth. We knew who our enemy was, um, but we kind of live in a time where that black and white dichotomy doesn't really work for us. Um, we, we are inundated with our entertainment these days. I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, the, the quality of a movie is usually based upon how much sympathy uh, the director can get you to feel for the bad guy. Um, oftentimes, we're, we're led to want to sympathize with somebody who is, who is making evil decisions. And likewise, the, we, we begin to question um, whether the good guys are actually the good guys. It's, well, who actually is the good guy, and who is the bad guy, and, and that, uh, that thing that we see in our entertainment and different movies and things that we'll watch, different shows, is a reflection of, I feel like, the world that we're in. It, it used to be pretty clear that like we knew who we were for and who we were against, and now it's not so clear. Um, I grew up, uh, for most of my time, and I know that this is unique as uh, one of the younger people in the room, um, I grew up in a time where we were in a war uh, for ex- almost 20 years, and it wasn't really clear like who was winning and who was losing. And then when it was over, it was like, well, did we like? It was kind of heartbreaking when it was over because there was didn't seem like it didn't feel like there was this national victory that we all could celebrate together. It was like, okay, we're done with that. Let's not talk about it anymore. Uh, we live in kind of a confusing time, and good guys and bad guys are kind of mixed up, and 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 it's it's frustrating. Um, so there's a couple different postures that we can take and the one that I'm leaned most towards is like I look at the world and I go there's a lot there's a lot of things to sort out there I'm not sure exactly what my role could possibly be in it and so I'll just kind of sit back and just wait for it all to sort itself out Uh, I kind of take to heart and absolutize um, these verses out of 1 Thessalonians, we encourage you, brothers, to do so even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on, uh, on anyone. So we, we take this idea of like, uh, the Christian thing is just to mind your own business. The world will sort itself out. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to do me and I'll let them do them as long as they're not like in my business. I'll let them do their own thing. And uh, we're just waiting, waiting for the world to change, right? Um, which is what I'd like to talk about for a couple of weeks. I want to talk about a guy who I think was in a very similar situation to the one that we face. Um, and so we're going to take the next three weeks and look at his story, look at what God did in his life, if you'll journey with me. And I'll just say on the front end, this is a different kind of series than one that I've put together before. 
And I personally uh, am doing something different, like my structure for my sermon is different than I'm comfortable with. And so if you're new, if you're a guest, if you're watching on the live stream, um, I just would invite you to hang with me. Uh, if things don't go well today, I've got two more weeks to pull it out of the gutter. Um, and so I just encourage you to, to engage with us over the next three weeks and take the story as a whole um, because there's a lot here that we're going to try to dig into and a lot to cover. So um, I need help with that, and I suspect that it might be helpful for us to begin this morning um, in prayer. And our habit together as neighborhood churches to, to start our Sunday mornings, begin our week praying the way that Jesus instructed us to pray. He left us a model to pray. And so we, we pray this together. You can pray it out loud if you'd like to, but I just encourage you to uh, bow your hearts together with me and let's begin seeking the Lord this week. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So I told you we're going to be talking about a, uh, a guy, explore the story of a guy who was in a similar situation. He was in, uh, I think, what would be very clearly defined as divided times. Um, his nation was divided. His nation was so divided that the two uh, different parties of his nation had actually set up separate governments and had different capital cities, and there was a king in one area, and there was another king in a different area, and the nation was so divided, they had actually created different systems of government. Um, and you would think, like, okay, if we got to this point where the Democrats are running that side and the Republicans are running that side, everybody could maybe be at peace, um, but it doesn't actually work that way because then we start to squabble over borders. And so this guy, uh, if I tell you his name, you're going to jump to conclusions, so I'm holding his name for a minute. Um, this guy was a prophet in a time, and, and one of his big messages to his people was about a border dispute. So he had given, God had come to him and given him a prophecy and said, hey, this is how far the border is going to come. And that was big news because this, these, were, these were warring factions within his country. It was a divided time. Um, the fence lines were being moved around. There were conversations about who is going to keep us safe and which God is the right God and how do we figure this out. Um, but it, and, and, and believe it or not, uh, within a, just a couple of generations, a foreign invader is going to take advantage of this division and come in and take away, carry off his people. So because of this division, the country is going to be so destabilized that a foreign invader is going to come in and carry a huge swath of the population away. And so it was a really, really frustrating time to follow God, to be somebody who's hearing the voice of God in the midst of all of this and trying to stay faithful and to say what's true when everybody's arguing about well, where do I draw the line? Like literally the line in the literal sand. Where do I draw the line? Um, and his name, uh, which means in his original language, his name means is dove, is the actual name. He was a representation of peace in a divided time. Can you imagine how frustrated it would be for your name to mean peace in a time where the, where the world is constantly warring around you? 
Like, oh, obviously your parents didn't know what was going on when they named you. And his dad, his dad's name was Truth. He was supposed to be somebody who was insightful and spoke truth. So, so the, the dove, the symbol of peace, the son of truth, was left to follow God in a world that was confusing and it wasn't really clear who was like on the right side of history. There were brothers fighting against brothers and when that happens, nobody's going to win anyway. And it begs the question, is it appropriate? Because I think this guy, our friend, just kind of took that stance of, I'm not going to be able to fix all this, so I'll just wait for the world to sort itself out. I'll just wait for the world to change. Because if I stick my neck out, like it's just going to get lobbed off. I, it's not worth it. Well, uh, God had more in store for him. His name is Jonah. So now you've got a whole different series of pictures that have come into your mind now that I've said his name. Those of you who are familiar with the story, if you're not familiar with the story, then good. Like, hopefully this will be something um, that, uh, that will help you. Um, hopefully you're, you're being new to the topic will be helpful in helping you to see the heart of the issue. Because for those of us who grew up in church, this is one of those stories that gets told to kids all the time. And I'd, I think I figured it out. If you want to teach a story to kids, it has to have and prominently feature animals. It doesn't matter what the animals are doing, but if there's animals in the story, then it's appropriate to teach kids. Like, we talk about Daniel's in the, Daniel in the lion's den. Do you realize how many people got eaten by the lions in that story? It is not a kid-friendly story. And yet, because it's got these pretty lions, we can tell the kids. Um, Jonah, similarly, is a story that involves a couple of different animals, one of which being a large fish, or perhaps you've heard it said a whale. And so we tell this story to kids. But when we do that, we often leave out... Um, the heart of the book. So we tell the story about that as it centers around this animal and we miss the heart of what God's trying to do in the book. So what I'd like to do in this series is zoom out a little bit and show you, um, and show you the heart of what God is actually trying to communicate to us through what he did in Jonah's life. Okay? Does that make sense? We good? Cool. So... I'm going to give you a summary of Jonah. And this is what makes me uncomfortable because you guys know I like to stick like next to the text because I don't, I don't have anything other than the Bible to give you guys. Like I'm not smart enough to come up with my own stuff. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give you a summary. I'm going to give you an overview of the book because, because in the next two weeks we're going to go through and we're going to read the chapters. We're going, to dig, we're going to dig into the text. But I'm going to give you an overview. It might be helpful for you to open up so you can kind of be looking and reading and, and verifying what I'm saying. It's on page 970 in these blue Bibles. And you might just want to dog ear the page because we're going to be here next week too. Um, 970, uh, we're going to look at the book of Jonah. And it starts off in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Dove, the son of Amittai, truth, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So, the timing, so for, for Bible nerds, and we kind of are Bible nerds because we're here on a Sunday morning, right? The timing for Bible nerds, just to help us put this into history, is this is in the nation of Israel. Um, it's been going on for a couple of years, and it's what, and what Bible scholars will call the divided kingdom, where um, David was the king over all of the tribes of Israel, but then after Solomon, his son, the kingdom got divided between two different warring factions. 
So it wasn't a great time. Um, as you read through the Kings and the Chronicles, uh, oftentimes a repeated phrase is, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord um, and worshipped the Baals. So there were people worshipping false gods in the nation that God had set up. Um, and we're about 800 years before Jesus is going to walk the earth. So, in history, we haven't gotten to Jesus yet. We're a couple hundred years after Moses, a couple hundred years before Jesus. We're kind of right in the middle of the thick of what God's doing in this nation. So God meets Jonah, as we just read. Uh, Jonah's living his life. He's in Benjamin, kind of a backcountry, smaller tribe, doing his own thing. And God comes to him and says, hey, I got something that I need you to do. I need you to go to that big city over there in that foreign country. And I need, to tell you, I need you to tell them that they are wicked. Call out against them because their wickedness has come up before me. Their, their wickedness is so evil, I need to take action against it now. And I need you to go and I need you to tell them. So Jonah hears the voice of the Lord, and he takes off to go in completely the opposite direction. Nineveh is to the east of him, and he goes a little bit west to a port city called Joppa, which is a beautiful city. Um, I, it's my favorite place in Israel. Of all the places that we visited, it's my favorite. If I ever like disappear off the map, like go to Joppa and check, because that's probably where I'm going to go live out the rest of my life as a hermit. Um, so he goes to Joppa to get a boat because he's going to go west. Nineveh, the city that he's called to, is in the east a couple hundred miles. He's like, I'm going to go to the west. I'm going to go to the farthest city that I have ever heard of. And he gets on a boat in the Mediterranean Sea and starts to travel west, away from the land that he's supposed to be going to, going in completely the opposite direction that God told him to go. And so as he is going on in his own way, there's a big storm at sea. Um, there's uh, wind and waves, and the sailors that have hired him are very concerned about, uh, very concerned about this storm to such the degree that these guys whose job is to transport goods from one port to another to sell them. They're, they're retail salespeople. They're selling things again. They look at the storm in the sea and they say, you know what, it's better for us to just lose our paycheck for the next six months than to die out here in the ocean. So they start to throw all of the cargo off of the ship in order to survive this storm because as the ship is weighed down, it can't like float above the waves that are crashing over them. And they're so concerned, even throwing the cargo over was not enough to get the ship to a place where it could survive. And so they begin to pray. You know, last resort, we got to pray. And they start praying. And they realize, hey, where's that, where's that new guy? Where's that guy who bought a ticket? And he's down in the back and he's sleeping. Um, so they wake him up and they say, hey, like, where are you from? Who's your God? And, and what's your business? Like, we're trying to figure out what is the cause of this great storm. Because for them, uh, anytime something bad happened, it was an omen. It was a sign from the gods. And so they're all praying to their gods who are not gods. Um, and they can't get any answers. And they're like, hey, like, who are you? Where are you from? Who do you worship? And he says, I'm Jonah. I'm from Israel, you know, God's chosen people. And I worship the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea. Like, I, I'm the, I worship the guy who does it all. And they're like, and you're asleep right now? Like, you, you ought to be praying. Like, please pray. And he's like, oh, well, this whole storm is my fault. Like, it, it's because I'm running away. I went the opposite direction of where God told me to go. And so he's, he's staring at, his, at a team of guys who their whole life is to like travel across the sea and to sell stuff. And he's like, yeah, this, this storm's my fault. And they're like, bro, we're out here too. Like, 
you're going to kill us with your disobedience. And they get, bless their hearts, they, they start to row. They, they pull out some oars and they start to row to try to get back to shore. And that doesn't work because the storm gets worse. And finally, they weren't willing to do it at first. And finally, they throw Jonah overboard. And the sea gets calm. They're just like, all right, God, like, you take care of him. Throw this guy overboard. And they realize who actually is in charge in that moment. The storm gets calm. Okay, whoever that guy was worshiping, that was, that's the real God because he was, he was doing some things with the weather. So now Jonah's in the water. Jonah gets swallowed by a giant fish. We know that part of the story. Chapter 2 is really interesting because he, he actually takes the time that he's in the fish, uh, about three days and three nights. He takes time to write a song. Um, he's got a lot of time to think, and he composes a song, which I find very, very interesting. And at the end of his song, um, where he finally says, you know what, God, I'll do, or I, I admit that you are Lord and I am not Lord, uh, the fish spits him back up on dry land. So that's chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah. That's a part of the story. If we know the story, we're familiar with that. Um, chapter 3 actually is a hinge. Uh, it actually uses almost identically the same words that chapter 1 used to start. So I read chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and then here's an addition, the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So we've got how the story started. We've got some things that happened. And then we've got, then God tried again. He said exactly the same thing to Jonah again. And this time, Jonah goes. He goes to Nineveh. He walks around. He tells them some things. And, um, and they hear the message. And they repent. And this, this destruction that God had promised for uh, the city of Nineveh is, is averted. Um, God doesn't destroy the city. He's, he might be destroying Kid Nation right now. But as, uh, as Jonah preaches, uh, he doesn't, he, God decides not to destroy the city. So, that's probably, if you're familiar with the story, you heard the story in Sunday school or in Kid Nation, um, that's probably the part of the story that you're familiar with. But the heart of the story is in chapter 4. And this is the part that we skip over all the time um, when we're telling the story. Um, this is the part that makes us uncomfortable because we're like, well, Jonah was a prophet of God. He must have, like, as he heard the voice of God, he should have just, like, bought in. Like, yeah, Lord, I'll go wherever you send me, except that he didn't do that. And then when the Lord comes and does something miraculous, like, every preacher dreams of speaking to a large crowd and the crowd actually listening to what the preacher said. Like, most of the time, like, you're trying to just keep people stay awake. But, but Jonah preached, and they not only heard him, but they did more than what he had called them to do. They repented in such a degree that not only they tore their clothes and wept and mourned for their sin, but they put um, signs of mourning on their cattle. Like, they're like, everybody's bought in. We're all repenting. We super don't want this thing to happen. So, Every preacher is like, yeah, like that's what I want. Except chapter 4, uh, Jonah goes out and he sits away from the city and he kind of pouts. He sulks on the hillside overlooking the city. And he's, he's sitting there waiting for God to destroy the city. Because that's what he came to tell the Ninevites God was going to do. He's like, I'm going to tell you, you guys are evil, God's going to destroy you. They said, oh, well, if God's going to destroy us, maybe we should like repent and turn away from our evil. And they did. And God said, okay, I'm not going to destroy you. But Jonah still went out to the hillside and just waited for the city to burn. And God didn't do it. God was, uh, interesting, God brings up a, a plant and has a, a vine grow up over top of him, so he's got some shade. 
And so he's sitting on the hillside. He's got some shade sitting on the hillside waiting for that city over there to burn. God miraculously makes this plant grow up over me. It's like, cool. At least I don't have to sit in the sun. And every, everybody in Florida is like, hallelujah. Like, give me a little bit of shade. That's all I need. So as he's sitting underneath the shade, there's a worm that comes up, and it, it, it eats the plant. And then the plant withers and dies. And now Jonah is doubly mad. He's mad because he's sitting in the sun, and he's mad that God didn't burn the city down. And here is, is the heart of the book of, of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4, and verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? For the storm, and for the fish, and for the city, all of this is actually setting and backdrop for the conversation that God needs to have with Jonah. And the conversation that God needs to have with Jonah is, do you do well to be angry that I have taken away your comforts, and that I have shown compassion to people that you don't want me to show compassion to? I've sent you to a foreign nation that will end up overtaking and, and taking your people away in the coming generations. But I want to show them compassion right now, and you think I'm wrong to do that. Do you do well to be angry? So that's the summary of the book of Jonah. That's how the story plays out, and that's what we're going to talk about in depth over the next couple of weeks. But as we are... Um, as we're starting here, I just want to give a couple of scholarly considerations. You know, those people that always have their face in the book and they want to talk about the text and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, a couple of things to observe. This story, this book, uh, this, this narrative is really, really well written. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't just Jonah's journal as he was going and scribbled, scribbled down. Like, somebody took the time to compose this story. It's set in four chapters. I've already told you that it starts chapter 1 and 2, and chapters 3 and 4, there's a break in the middle, and it kind of restarts. There's an order to it. It's highly structured, um, and it's brief. Like, Jonah was a preacher, and he only took four chapters to tell his story. So you know, like, he was trying to get, to get something across, right? It's very brief. It's well-structured. Um, and, it's, and it's poetic. Like, there, sometimes in the English, we're not able to see it, but the, the way that the words are repeated, um, the way that concepts kind of flow through, um, it's poetic. There's, there's a, a meter to how the story unfolds. It's, each chapter is approximately the same number of verses. Like, it's really well-balanced. So I want you to see that the book is, is, is purposely written the way that it's written. It's written really actually beautifully and is trying to convey in this beautiful format this really, really difficult question about what is the heart of man. And uh, obviously, a bunch of the scholarly conversations centered around whether or not this is historically reliable. Is there actually a fish that could eat a person whole and then spit them up three days later? Um, and we could spend a lot of time talking about biology, but I don't know that that's necessary for us to do. Is it historically accurate? I'm inclined to think that the God who made everything that I've ever seen in my whole life can make something that I've never seen in my whole life and hide it from me because I don't know everything, but that's, that's just me. I'm, I realize that I'm taking that on faith. There are other things that these scholars, or that scholars will take on faith that I would not take on faith. Um, and so whether it's historical or not, I'm inclined to think that it is because of the way that it's written. It obviously is written to, um, in a hyperbolic way, 
hyperbolic way. So every time he talks about something, it's huge. It's as big as it's ever been. He says Nineveh took three days to walk around. And the scholars would be like, well, Nineveh was never that big. And I'm like, well, how do you know what they considered Nineveh? Like, was it just the city or was it all the farmlands around the city? And how do you know how fast Jonah was walking? Because Jonah really didn't want to be there. So maybe it took him three days to walk around the city because he was dragging his feet and took a nap every 10 minutes. Like, like, honestly, it would not surprise me for Jonah to be like, hey, you guys are evil, and, like, go sit down for another hour. You know, I've had coworkers that work that way. It makes sense to me that Jonah, who didn't want to be there, would work that way too, right? So, whatever. Like, scholars want to pick, pick it apart. Like, oh, it's so hyperbolic. Oh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And, yes, it is fantastic, but if we get distracted by the fish, and if we get distracted by um, how impossible the supernatural components are, which are not actually impossible for a supernatural being who's organizing the whole thing, then we miss the point. And the point is that God's heart is to warn those far from him of their great danger. The whole book of Jonah is this. God's heart is to warn those who are far from him of their great danger. And there's a couple of things about that. You're like... Okay, so God calls, what's interesting to me about this book is I, I wish that God would have given us more details about the specifics of the message, like what was going to happen if this didn't go that way, or like blah, blah, blah. Like I wish, I want more details, and God doesn't give us that, which means that I'm, I need to stick with what we've got. Um, but God's warning them, hey, your evil has come up against me, and so you're going to be destroyed. And there's there's a way to look at that and go, well, God's so mean. Why would he call those people evil? Like, they've got the same wicked hearts that everybody else has, and why doesn't he, like, call out the evil in Jerusalem? Because there's probably just as much evil going on in Jerusalem as there was in Nineveh, and yeah, it does. And yeah, he gives Jerusalem a big spanking later. It's just not their time yet. Is God mean for calling people wicked? Not if they're wicked. And if they're far from him... If they're, if they're far from God and, and, and the way that the world is supposed to work, is it unkind to tell them that? Or is there a grace in saying, the way you're going leads to death? And I think sometimes like, we get so, uh, we get so like, flustered about, like, well, I can't judge anybody. And it's like, well, if the way leads to death, like, what does it say about you that you're not willing to, to let them know they're getting ready to drive off a cliff? It's not unkind to sell somebody that you cut their brake lines. It is unkind to cut their brake lines. Don't do that. But, it, but it's not unkind to tell them that the way they're going leads to death. And God's heart is to warn those that are far from him of their great danger. It's not unkind for God to say, if you want to be separate from me, there is no life apart from me. And if you go that way, I'll give you what you ask me for. But it won't return to you the thing that you think you're going to get. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, its way is death. And God, it's not God's desire for anybody to go to judgment. God wants for each and every one of us to be saved. God's heart is for those who are far from him to be warned of their great danger. 
how, like, the Ninevites are living their lives. Like, they've got, they've got a culture, they've got, uh, they've got jobs, they've got economic power in the, in the thing, like, they've got wars to run, like, they've got things in their life that are distracting them. And, and unless somebody who has the truth comes to them to share the truth with them, they're just going to keep thinking that the truth they fabricated is actually helpful. And in the book of Jonah, we see God's heart in direct contrast to Jonah's heart. Jonah, <laughs> Jonah's not the hero of this story. He gets his name on the title of the book, but he is not the hero. I had a, um, there was a, a man in my life, he was an older man and I was a kid, I was a teenager. So I didn't ever say this, thank God, because he would have broken my nose. But he, um, as he was wrestling with his faith, his name was John, and he came to a place where he felt like he needed to break, make a break with his old life and start a new life. And he's like, I'm not going to be John anymore. I'm going to be Jonah. And I'm like, bro, you, can you pick a different one? Like, <laughs> like, like, I don't think that that's a guy you want to name yourself after. Um, and I didn't ever say that. But anyway, Jonah, all that to say, Jonah's not the hero of the story. Like, we should not come away from reading the book of Jonah and be like, oh, I should be like that guy. He, he's got it together. He knows what's up. Um, if you find yourself sulking out in the forest, looking at the city of Ocala, waiting for it to burn, like, let's do some reflection here. And it's easy to throw stones at Jonah. But the heart of mankind resents God's compassion to people that we think are unworthy. There's, we're born with some defaults of how we see the world. And some of them are not our fault. And some of them are our fault. But we look at the world and we see like, okay, well that person's kind of nice to me, and so they must be a nice person, and it would be nice if God was nice to them. And we look at some people and go, man, that person's mean to me, so they must be a mean person, and it would be nice of God to be mean to them. The, the heart of mankind is resentful of God's grace towards people that we think are unworthy of it. They haven't been nice enough to me for God to be nice to them. We have no natural desire for God's justice. We have no natural desire for God's justice. Uh, we have a desire for my justice, and, and the way that my justice works is like, it's from my perspective, uh, through my eyes, whatever I think is fair And God bless you parents who have to instruct your children like that life is not fair. And God bless us as we continue to come to grips with justice is not what I think is fair. There's an unfairness even in the gospel. I don't know if, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There's an unfairness in the gospel that God would look upon Jesus, the, the only one who did not deserve any kind of punishment or retribution for sin, and pour all of the punishment and all of the retribution for sin out on one person who did not deserve it in order that people that actually did deserve it might walk free in grace and love and mercy and in true life. Like There's an unfairness in that that God calls just. This is the justice of God. We have no natural desire for God's justice. And so what I think is fair versus what God says is right.
Well, that's kind of a, a neat story. <laughs> the kind of neat questions to grapple with, right? Like, okay, cool deal. Like, I get it. Um, but I still like. There's a lot going on in the world. I don't think I can sort all that out. So I'm just gonna. I'm gonna do me. I'll let the world kind of do its own thing. Unless we can do that. Unless we also have a call. Unless the voice of God has, has come upon us and given us instructions for how we are to go into the world. I can't, I, I never heard the voice of God, I'm good. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You therefore go and make disciples of all nations. You mean my family, like my kids, the people I like? Like I'll, I'll, make, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make disciples of the people that I like to spend time with because yeah, that's a lot of fun, you know? I get to hang out, get to talk about the Bible, you know, um, that sounds good. Like, hold on, <laughs> make disciples of all nations. Well, they're kind of backwards. They don't, they don't eat the right food. <laughs> I don't really smell right. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of, I don't like to be in the same room with them. It's all fine and good to just be waiting for the world to change unless we also have a call. Followers of Jesus, I submit to you, we also have a call. We must take those verses in 1 Thessalonians 4 to mind your own business and, and, and live a quiet life on balance with our commission to make disciples of all nations. So here's a couple of questions for us to consider. I don't know why that's blank. Do we know the almighty God of heavens, sea, and earth? There's a point in, in the story I tried to point out to you where the pagans, all the people who are worshiping false gods, turn to Jonah and say, who is it that you worship? And he says, well, I'm from Israel, and I worship the God of the heavens. I worship the God who made the sea and the earth. And they're all like, why are you sleeping, bro? Like, if that's who you worship, if that's who you know, then why are you asleep right now? You should be calling on his name. So I think the first question to ask as we approach this book is, do we know the one true God who created everything that we have ever seen and anything that we might ever imagine? Do we know him? Second, do we prioritize our comfort over God's compassion? This is the heart of the book. Do you do well to be angry because I sent a worm to destroy the plant that I also made to grow so that you'd have some shade while you're sitting here up on the hill sulking that I haven't destroyed all these people? Do we prioritize our comfort over God's compassion? I feel bad saying it because I don't think it's the best plan. Like I, I can think of some ways that I would prefer for God to work, but God's plan for showing compassion to the nations is here in the room now. We're his plan. And I don't really like that. I think he could probably get better mileage out of some angels. They'd probably do a better job. But this is what he chose. 
And I look in the mirror and go, God, that's not A-team. You're on like Team Z. I don't know what you think you're doing. He says, yeah, like I'm going to get all the glory for this. Just you wait. Do we prioritize our comfort over God's compassion? Because we're agents of God's compassion in the world. Which means we have to answer the question, who do we consider unworthy of God's kindness? Who are we unwilling to be agents of God's compassion towards? Kind of the the low-hanging fruit, again, is like the people that we see that are in need, that don't have their act together, that are just kind of like begging. Like that's that's kind of like, that's low-hanging fruit. I think that's what we'd expect. But like there there are people that I don't want to have conversations with because I hate what they stand for. Oftentimes, I'm, I'm less comfortable in a room full of people that have a ton of money than I am with people that have nothing. And yet, God's grace could be extended to them too. And if I find myself in those rooms, he's placed me there as an agent and an ambassador of him for whatever it is that he wants spoken there. And I can get on my high horse and be like, blessed are the poor um, and blessed are those who mourn. And you guys can enjoy all of your, 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 uh, your wealth now because if you don't store up treasures in heaven, then you've got nothing to look for. Like I can get on my high horse and preach that and forget that I'm an agent of compassion. Who do we consider unworthy of God's compassion? Because God's heart is to warn those who are far from him of their great danger. Would you pray with me? God, this is difficult. You know my own uh, hesitation to, uh, to dip into this book and to want to talk about it. And Lord, um, I thank you for your kindness, which has uh, captivated my attention which has made the story just fascinating to me, and I see it as connected to so many other things. Um, But Lord, I pray that the fascination with it would not just be scholarly, and that our our study of it would not just um, help us get the facts of the timeline straight. But Holy Spirit, would you do the hard work of examining our hearts to show us the places that we are angry. To show us the places where we have allowed hate to well up against those whom you have created. And Jesus, by your mercy, would you give us your heart? For those of us who are are following you, Jesus, that have trusted you for salvation, God, I pray that you would do the hard work of shaping our hearts to look like you. And for those of us who are kind of skeptical of all of this and are trying to figure out what to do, Jesus, I pray that you'd show yourself strong in introducing yourself, creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea, powerful beyond all comprehension, and yet compassionate and slow to anger gracious and forgiving towards those who are humble. Would you humble our hearts, Lord Jesus, and lead us to walk with you. It's in your name we pray.